time. So we're going to begin a question and answer period. Uh, you know the format. Uh, anybody who has a question will come up to that microphone and mention your name first and limit your uh, introduction to your question as short as possible. Remember, this is a question period. This is not your time to make a statement. So if you start making a statement, I'll cut you off. And uh, please limit your number of questions to two. And in order not to clog that area, as soon as you finish your question, please return to your seat. So time to have your question. And uh, Ken Peacock will answer as much as possible. Thanks. Um, hi, hi, my name is Peter Beal, and I enjoyed your thing. What I want to see is, if, as a philosopher, I'd like your philosophical comment on the changes in our society. What I mean is, for instance, like they found ferns at the base of, in an Antarctica. They just now they did a flyover of Greenland and found grass on the side of a mountain. So as southern Alberta becomes like a desert and there's lush valleys in Greenland, isn't it really the thing, like what we're moving, this globalization, isn't that really the thing that corporations take over and we get rid of nations and they move people to where life is acceptable instead of starving in, in drought areas, people should move just like, you know, in Africa the water buffaloes follow the rainy season. So isn't it really a, that what we need is a change in our social structure? Uh, okay, well, short answer is yes, definitely. I mean, I didn't really talk about that specifically, but there has to be political and social changes to uh, uh, accommodate what's going to happen. That's when I talked about ingenuity, I, I mentioned also so social ingenuity or political ingenuity, whatever the term might be. So it's not just coming up with better batteries and, and things like that. That's very, very important. But also the conditions under which that new technology can actually be applied to help people. And um, <clears throat> again, you talked about the idea of people moving. Well, uh, quite a number of scientists have been talking about the, the risks of, of, of um, climate refugees. I mean, if, and again, it's a, it's, it's a question, well, there already are my understanding is there's on the order of 30 million refugees right now uh, in the world. And many of them are refugees from places like Syria where there's war, but some of those wars can be traced back in part to climate change. Syria experienced an extremely serious drought, which drove a lot of people off the land into the cities, which caused social unrest, et cetera. So, so uh, people are very concerned about the, uh, the question of climate refugees. And, and I mean, again, it depends partially on how fast it happens. <clears throat> if um, sea level rises quite rapidly due to ice sheets collapsing, um, you've got hundreds of millions of people in, in the low-lying areas of the world, Florida, Bangladesh, you name it, they're going to have to go somewhere. and They might have to up and move rather quickly. And where are they going to go? And here, they, yeah, Alberta, so we're a thousand meters above sea level, so we don't have to worry about sea level rise in Alberta, but we, there might be uh, a lot of people wanting to come here. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's something that, 
a little bit of, uh, dare I say it, planning might be uh, a good idea and looking ahead a little bit. And we're going to need some more, in, more international cooperation. What governmental form it takes, I'm not sure. Personally, I'd like to see the United Nations strengthened, but that's politically very difficult with country, so many countries, like the, particularly the U.S., who would fight tooth and claw against that because countries don't want to give up their sovereignty. So, but there will have, but the, these problems we're talking about are on an international scale. And thank you for bringing that up. That's a really crucial point. So, so there has to be international cooperation. And Mr. Trump may not like it, right? But uh, it's, that's the way it's going to have to be. And are we going to go into that kicking and screaming? Or can we sort of think ahead and sort of plan for what's coming down the pipeline? And that's, that's what I, I would hope we could do. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Kent, thanks uh, for coming today. Uh, my question relates to two things, actually. Uh, one is uh, how big a climate event you think it'll take before uh, people really wake up to, to this uh, problem? And the other thing is, um, as many people talk about, uh, whatever Alberta does, it really doesn't make that much difference in the world in, in terms of emissions. But you touched upon that uh, we can be a leader, and often these things only happen with leadership. Yeah, second point first. Um, yeah, I, I, think I think leadership is incredibly important. People are looking up to us. Um, yeah, we're maybe our total emissions under the worst case scenario are they're a bit more than a drop in the bucket, but people are looking to us for, for, for leadership. Um, so, sorry, just your first question again was, I went on your, how, how big an event would it take? Right, well, I don't know. The human capacity for denial is, is uh, bigger than Antarctica, so, um, I mean, if, if half of Florida suddenly went underwater, I'm, I'm still not sure that the governor of Florida would admit that climate change was real. I, I, just, I just don't know. Um, it seems to me that there would come a point at which it would be pretty evident to most people around the world, even most members of the Republican Party. I, I'm, but I, I mean, I, I think those of us who think about these things feel, well, do we have to wait for some absolute catastrophe? I mean, if your roof is leaking a little bit, why don't you fix it before the roof comes in, you know, and, and destroys your, your house completely? And hopefully we don't have to wait for ha part of Antarctica to slide into the sea and cause two or three meters of sea level rise overnight before uh, we act. So um, <clears throat> short answer is I just don't know. I think, I think you, there are people talk about a sort of environmental Pearl Harbor that might galvanize the world into action. But it, it, it would be, uh, I don't hope for that because that's hoping for a catastrophe that would destroy millions of lives. And I'm, that's, that's not what I do for a living. I, it, it's, it's, um, I, I, part of my job, part of the job of, of, of concerned citizens is to c communicate, to, to raise awareness so that perhaps we can take action before something absolutely catastrophic happens. The problem being, as I've said, the scientists themselves don't know the timing on that. So it's a little bit like predicting earthquakes. If you live on the San Andreas Fault, you know sooner or later there's going to be another big one. But is it tomorrow? Is it 100 years from now? Hard to say. The only difference, the difference between earthquakes and climate catastrophes, however, 
is that we know that the probability of climate catastrophes steadily increases over time, whereas the probability of major earthquakes is roughly constant over a long period of time. So, next, sure. My name is Terry Shellington. Thank you very much, Kent. Uh, <clears throat> I appreciate your words of wisdom on the subject, although I note that you're not running for office politically or nationally. I wouldn't. At the moment. What you've reminded me of is the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, <coughs> there were probably some insiders who saw that coming over a few years. But for most of us observers, speaking personally at least, it happened very suddenly. Right. Uh, suddenly, the Soviet Empire imploded yeah. and was unworkable. And uh, you've outlined some scenarios around ice sheets and, and the, uh, the marketability of Alberta oil in which I, I suspect it may be like uh, the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, coming upon us, for most of us, very suddenly. And I don't know how we prepare for that uh, because politically you run for four years in most of our jurisdictions. So um, I welcome your comments. Well, it raises a really interesting point about the nature of governance. Um, I'm all for democracy. I vote every chance I get, so forth. Uh, but the, the problem with our system is that it does have this very short time horizon. I mean, you've all heard the expression um, uh, nimto. You, you know what a nimby is, not in my backyard. A nimto means not in my term of office, right? And, and this is a politician saying, you won't get me making a hard decision because you know, I know I'm going to be facing the electorate in four years or whatever. So, so, so it would be very, very nice to have governance structures, and I have no idea how to do this. If I could dream something up, it would just be, but the, the, that, that could somehow counterbalance the relatively short-term political demands with longer-term, dare I say it, vision. Is there, there's a, I usually don't quote the Bible, but there's a proverb that says, without vision, the people perish, right? And, and we need some long-term vision here. So we're not just reacting to, oh, the price of oil dropped slightly, and oh, what are we going to, let's close, let's shut down half the universities because the price of oil has just dropped by $5. I mean, we'd like to have some longer-term vision, and we need the institutional structures that can accommodate that, and we really don't have them. Well, actually, within Canada, the only long-term institution I can think of that has a function sort of like this might be the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, because those people are appointed for long periods of time, and their job is to ensure a kind of a continuity. I mean, that's their job description, right? So the case comes before the Supreme Court. Is it consistent with the Constitution? That's what they have to ask. So, but, so that, that's a good model, a good starting point. But, but that's, we need something like that, and I just don't obviously have a, an instant answer to what it would be. Might, might that be the role of the Senate, for example? Well, if the Senate were empowered to do something like that, um, this, if the Senate were, um, um, yeah, th th that's quite possible. I mean, it, it, in, um, th I mean, that is sort of in, in, in political systems where you have this sort of two houses. You have the, the plebes or the commons and, and the, the, the patrician class, <laughs> and supposedly the patrician class, they're going to be conservative and concerned with longer-term values. Now, we know it doesn't always work out that way. But I, I'm actually opposed to an elected Senate. I would like to see an appointed Senate with, with um, people who, are, who have some vision, so, so some long-term vision, and maybe just a little teeny bit more actual governing power, too, so they're not just rubber stamping what the commons produces. But that's a very, a bit, again, I'm not a political scientist. I'm just saying somehow we need, 
we need some kind of socio-political mechanisms that can take into account lo lo this long-term vision, okay? What are we going to do if all of a sudden 10 million climate refugees want to move to Alberta? Well, do we have any idea? Has anybody thought about that? Right. So, <clears throat> My name is Olivia. Um, my question is around the humanitarian uh, concerns around climate change sure. <coughs> and specifically um, like we live in a, a first world country, uh, most of us don't live in poverty, and our form of poverty is very different than, you know, China's form of poverty, where, you know, these people want to live like we live, and they have the right to live like we live, and yet the impact on the environment for them to get there is huge. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're really lucky to, to have, you know, research and innovation, and I think and I think that is our future and, and our solution, but uh, how do we balance that with pulling people out of these dire situations by burning coal and, and, and their right to live like the rest of the world? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a huge question, and, and um, <clears throat> that's what, for example, um, people from India will say. I mean, I, they said during the IPC, sorry, the Paris Treaty negotiations, representatives from India said, look, you've got to give us a chance to, burn, to bring our people out of absolute poverty before you tell us we can't use coal. And um, in the long run, this is a case where social and technological innovation have to work hand in hand. People have to have alternatives. There has to actually be an alternative to burning gigatons of coal. And we're getting there, but it, it takes a while to get all of that in place yet. And uh, I mean, in, since then, India has now made a commitment. They've canceled a whole lot of their planned coal firing plants and they're moving to, to, to wind power because it's cheaper. <laughs> and plus, of course, it's cleaner, but it's also because it's significantly cheaper. So, the, the, uh, uh, so what I think a huge part of the, the, the uh, at least especially from the technological side, a huge part of the job to be done is just provide feasible alternatives. And there's a long list, I mean, I just listed a couple of them on my talk of electric power, wind power, and, and there's all kinds of things that can be done which provide alternatives and they keep the lights on for people. They make life possible. But, um, I mean, again, we get back to the previous question, we don't want to be in a, in a, in a catastrophic situation where, um, sort of like an extreme lifeboat situation where you have to throw some of the people out of the lifeboat for the thing to stay afloat. We, it's, that's very, very brutal. And these things, of course, such events have occurred in the past. And we, we, don't, want, we don't want to go there. So again, let's think ahead. Ken Sears, and um, just to extrapolate, uh, we, I think if we agree that there will be at least some degree of sea level rise, which will affect the most heavily populated poor areas on certainly in North America uh, which w is the eastern seaboard and everything west of the Rockies from California north that in and of itself will probably dictate some significant population shifts away onto habitable land but we're also going to from everything I've read there's a possibility of the the interior of this continent and most of the other continents you're going to see desertification so that the, the great American desert will come back big time. Which means, and if you spend that around the world, we're going to see more and more people forced into smaller and smaller areas of land just to live. And in that they'll be competing for 
for food resources. But if you take that and combine it with the projected decline in available work that's hitting the industrial, you know, it's, it's already starting to happen in the industrial world. Your point? More and more people in smaller and smaller areas with Excuse less me, and less money to do. So how do, we, how do we start to deal with that? How do we start to deal with the social implications of that? Well, there's several questions there, several issues, and I don't know if I can do them justice. I mean, there's the issue of te technology making old jobs obsolete, for example. I mean, this is already happening in the oil patch, where a lot of those jobs up in the oil patch are, are lost now, not because of the price of oil. It's because they've automated all kinds of processes, right? The jobs don't exist anymore. So what are people going to do? And so you have discussions of things like, a, a, you know, sort of a, a living wage makes sort of negative income tax. There's various proposals being considered right now. Um, you know, those are all worth, things like that are all worth discussing. But the, the, to, I guess to capture your question in one phrase, there, we're going to have more and more people having to ha share less and less, or at least that is one possible risk. And how do we cope with that? And um, I don't obviously have a, a, an immediate answer to that, except, again, we, we've got to at least accept the reality that this could happen and take reasonable steps to do what planning we can do and keep on generating options so that if something bad does come down the pipe, it's not so bad. Um, and this is going to require investment. I mean, if maybe if Puerto Rico had a, a better you know, they'd spent, somebody had spent the money to keep their electrical system in better repair. They wouldn't be in such bad state now. Uh, you know, maybe if Mr. Trump had paid them back the $33 million that he owes Puerto Rico, there's a little issue there. So, so you know, um, it's, 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 not, it's not easy. It's not easy. I, I, I can't give a better answer than that. Bev Mendel Atherstone. <clears throat> I think we have to be very careful when we're looking at um, the climate disaster on the planet, we, that we don't lose hope, that we always look at what we can be doing so that looking global and what can we do locally. Because if we lose hope, then we just give right into that neoliberal agenda of, well, keep consuming because um, it doesn't matter anyway. So I just want to mention that China and India are both doing tremendous things. You mentioned India. Uh, China, in, because um, the air the air quality is so bad, and India the same. So um, and my husband and I were in India in 2011. Every state had various things going on. Um, turn, in terms of the long term, some some countries are doing long term planning. Malawi is uh, not Malawi. The Maldives, which Beb, is an archipelago. Beb, your yep. point. It's, it's, I'm coming. I'm coming to it. Archipelago of 2,000 islands is Can buying I cut up you huge, off? huge tracts of land. It's coming. Huge tracts of land in Australia. So that's hopeful. So it seems to me that what you're saying is CO2, and we all know CO2 is the big, big baddie we've got to get out of the air, or we're going to be suffering from it in the future. So what about the idea of giving incentives to people, to, to um, scientists, to young people, to uh, come up with CO2 capture mechanisms um, that would help us, since obviously we can't plant enough trees, and you had mentioned something in your talk about CO2 capture. So what about 
Well, thank Some you. Giant, thank you. Thank you, Bev. Rewards. Thank you. You Thanks. asked the question. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, again, the short answer is that's investment in R and D. So we have to take our bright young people. We have to train them. We have to give them the resources they need and and put them to work on it. And um, uh, it's human get get human creativity working on this. Now, carbon capture. The the problem is that. You know, unlike see, the, there's a lot of technologies we know, like elect, you know, better and better batteries. We we can see where that technology is going. We know it, it, it's pretty good already, and it's and we know that it's foreseeable that it's going to get better. But carbon capture is um, we, there does not exist a clear idea as to how we could capture the amount of carbon we actually have to capture. But we're talking gigatons. We're we're talking hundreds of gigatons of carbon have to be taken out of the atmosphere really soon. And um, and how do we do that? So the, the only answer is put human ingenuity to work on it. And um, I can't guarantee that some right somebody's going to come up with an answer to it. But but um, I'm inherently optimistic. I mean, I like fond of saying if I were on the Titanic, I'd probably be one of the ones who are still bailing right to the end. You know, that's just that's just me. But uh, you know, but um, but. Uh, um, <clears throat> um, put people to work on it. And what we what we need are new ideas, and you need the climate in which new ideas can be generated. So one of the things that worries me is the general increase in authoritarian politics around the world. Almost every country, or with Canada is one of the very few exceptions, where where there's people. It's getting harder and harder for people to ask questions, to uh, criticize, to dis, to dis exercise dissent. And um, that's, that's a fatal mistake. One of the things that interests me in my, I've done a bit of writing on this, is the problem of the weird social dynamics that, that can occur at a time of economic or ecological crisis. That you, you get, in a sense, you, very often what societies do, and possibly Easter Island, is they double down on, on whatever was working for them before. And any attempt to dissent from that is crushed. And that's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. If, if what you're doing is no longer working, you should be trying as hard as you can to think of something else. But there, there's all these social dynamics come in. And again, it take me, we don't really have time to get into all of that fully, but um, those who do benefit from the system, they don't want to give up their privileges. Um, people are, also people are just generally, as I said earlier, scared of change, right? Just the fact of all of a sudden, well, what will we do if the entire oil industry disappears? That's just that's a really scary thought for many people, and they'd rather just change the subject. But um, so we have to provide. See, it's not just coming up with money for more R and D. We have to provide the social climate that in which innovation can flourish, and that that and people have to think about how would that be done. Okay, maybe I'll just take the next question. Austin Fennell. Thanks for your address today. It gives us lots to think about. Um, I wonder how much the management of climate change is directed not towards survival, but in maintaining our standards of living. And we don't want to go back on that. We're so used to having a high standard of living that we don't want to sacrifice that. We want it to get better instead of more, uh, more threatened. That, that's a really good question. <coughs> um. I mean, a lot of people will point out that the average person in India or China uses a small fraction of the amount of energy that the average person in Canada would use. 
Um, I mean, I drove here this morning. I got to drive over to the university to teach a class this afternoon. I could actually do it by bicycle. I'd probably be in much better condition if I did. I might be late for my afternoon class, though. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 uh, quite a bike ride from here over to campus. But but um, but uh, you're right. It's 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 difficult for for us to give up a lavish lifestyle, even accepting the fact that other people are. You know, the belt, their belts are very, very tight, and and um, maybe a little. I say this with uh, Reverend Mitsui in the room here. Maybe a little moral and spiritual leadership is required here. I don't don't quite know what the what the term is, but but um, a lot of it I think is that that helps is just awareness of just realizing, just being knowing that okay, here we are having a, this lavish event. And, and there's somebody else out there who's desperately hoeing rice right now so that there can be enough to feed their family that night, right? And, and just to be aware of that. And for most people, sometimes that's, that's a, a very valuable component, just to realize, okay, the, the other person's not in great shape. And, and, uh, and uh, try to see the others as others see us and just see, see other people. That's a, so things like inter communications and the Internet and stuff like that can be used could to, to a very good purpose to uh, make us more aware of just human conditions around the world. But um, how much is too much? I mean, if, 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 if see, the, the, there, again, there's a kind of a catch-22 here because if a, a society's way of life becomes too austere, um, yeah, I mean, we, we could enormously reduce our consumption of energy and, and materials, but then there's all kinds of things we can't do anymore. And I'm not just talking about me driving <clears throat> to work. I mean, how do we keep our hospitals running and so forth? Their hospitals suck energy like crazy. Very, very resource intensive. And yet they save lives. They make life possible. So, so where do you draw the line, actually? Uh, if it gets too austere, then, then all kinds of things that could actually benefit or could, could actually help us to keep things going are no longer possible. So there's a bit of a catch-22 there as well. And personally, um, my sense of it is that I feel some sense of personal responsibility that I am in a very privileged position um, compared to many, many people in the world. And I sort of have this funny idea that I should try and use that to some extent for betterment. I, I mean, that's part of, part of what I, I do. You know, I'm a teacher, I'm a researcher. That's what I do for a living. And it's a great privilege to be able to do that. It, and it's a privilege in, in a sense that it's not just that I get to indulge my little fantasies and my whims and my interests. Um, it's, it's a privilege in the sense that I, I get a chance to do something that could help. No guarantees, of course, but I do get a chance to do something that could help. And I, I consider that a great privilege. And um, so another, another metaphor you can use to think about this is the notion of leverage, right? So, so if you have some resources, some time, um, you can use that as leverage to make other good things happen. Now, if all that's taken away from you, if it gets too austere, then even if you have the imagination, you can think of uh, something good that could happen, you haven't got the tools to use it. So we have some tools here in North America, and we should use them. That's, that's sort of my sense. Am I okay asking one more? You're the last one. <clears throat> Ken, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, a lot of, I think a lot of people 
say that because of modern technology, we know about all these events, climate events that is happening now. Can you talk a little bit about people that say that they've always been happening, so just that more people know about it nowadays. Uh, is oh. any, uh, have you got any uh, evidence to say that yeah. it is in fact getting more uh, frequent and stronger and all the stuff that goes with well, that. Well, this one of the, this, what the things that the scientists are trying to do is to understand the difference between what you might call natural variability versus other things that are happening in modern times, right? And um, believe me, there, there are legions of scientists who have been working on this for decades. So, so, I mean, now I know you're not doing this, Nude, but I mean, what some people sometimes do is, oh my God, I bet they didn't think of the volcanoes. Has anybody ever checked whether it could be volcanoes? And you can just see my colleagues at UofL going, oh my God, we never thought of the volcanoes, right? So, now it's not like that. Don't worry, they've been checking the volcanoes, cosmic rays, clouds, um, <clears throat> solar, changes in solar output, um, you name it. They've been looking at all of these things exhaustively and, and so that the consensus of most scientists, and you're always going to find a few who disagree, <clears throat> but the consensus of most scientists is that if you look at all the things, su superimposed on natural variability is a very strong greenhouse signal. And that's what's causing that so-called hockey stick, the sudden upturn up in global temperatures, particularly in the last 15, say 20 years roughly. It's, 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 it's greenhouse gases. Um, what about volcanoes? Well, actually, volcanoes, in, certainly in the last few centuries or a couple of centuries, pretty clear evidence they've caused a net cooling effect because they put particulate matter into the stratosphere. So Pinatubo in 1991 actually caused the cooling of a, a bit more than half a degree Celsius for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> um, solar output, all oh, the sun's getting, well the sun's not, actually the sun has been relatively quiescent. The sun is, the solar output has gone down very, very slightly. I mean, you have to be an astrophysicist to be able to detect it, but the solar output has gone down very, very slightly in the last 40 or 50 years. We don't have a clue why. They don't really understand solar dynamics, obviously, but fortunately, if the sun ever decided to heat up a little bit again, we'd, things would really get interesting down here. So, <clears throat> but no, actually, it's, it's not solar output. It's, it's um, cosmic rays, about six or eight different cosmic ray theories. That doesn't work. And, and, now, and then you, then it, now, a slightly different version of the same question is, well, there's always been climate variability. Why should we worry? I mean, 20,000 years ago, where we're sitting here now was under an ice cap, and then it melted very quickly. And so it, to, to me, this is sort of like saying, well, okay, um, people have always been dying. We're all going to die sooner or later. So why should I worry about not dying? That doesn't make sense. That's a complete non sequitur. I mean. When I leave here, I'm going to try and drive over quite carefully to where I have to go and not just say, oh, well, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well get it over with now, you know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it, there's, there's variability and there's variability. And, and <clears throat> so what the scientists have tried to do is separate out the causes of what's happening now from other possible causes. And the picture they're getting is, is a statistically significant picture that greenhouse warming is things like uh, Hurricane Irma is, is, is tending to make them stronger and that we can see certain trends. So 
So it's, does that answer the question? I, I, I mean, I could go on and on, but it's, it's I, think, I think that's the best I can do on that. Okay.